welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkleys. Today's podcast is about the legal landscape for journalism in Australia. From defamation to state security, how does the law affect journalists' ability to expose the truth? To discuss this topic, we have an all-star panel of legal writers and editors, a lawyer and even a judge. This talk was recorded at the State Library of New South Wales on the 20th of September 2018 as part of our regular Walkley Talks series there. It used to be that the only time you weren't meant to insult someone was soon after they died, but legally, increasingly, that seems to be about the only time that you can defame anyone. But it's not just the defamation terrain that journalists are facing, which with high-profile cases around Alan Jones, Rebel Wilson, Chris Gale, Chowchak Wing in the headlines recently... Journalists also have to face increasingly draconian state security laws. We're currently seeing the lovely named Witness K being brought before the courts over the East Timor spying ring. There are suppression orders, there's family court issues to go through, and there's also the Copyright Act to manage, and that's just before breakfast. So what I will do is really go straight to Richard, who many of you will know is a columnist for the Saturday paper, publisher of the Justinian and the Gazette of Law and Journalism. Then I'll go to Judge Gibson, who I understand has had a very long interest in defamation because I, I read recently was obsessed from the age eight or nine of a book called Hatred, Ridicule and Contempt that she found on her parents' bookshelf as a, as a child. So there's a long history of interest in defamation. I'll pass straight over to Richard, who will give us a three- or four-minute four kickoff, and then we'll go around and have a discussion, and hopefully there'll be time for questions. Yes, thanks, Marcus. So as far as from the perspective that I have at the moment, I certainly don't want to put forward a case that the media should have a free-for-all All I'm really advocating is for a better balance between those two dynamic polar opposites, freedom of speech or the right to publish decent, informed public interest stories on the one hand and protection of reputations on the other. So the thesis I have is that that is extraordinarily out of balance at the moment. There is... And in fact, Australia really is a backwater when it comes to any decent defences for the media to publish the work in public interest journalism. So first up is the research that I was involved with, a couple of other very enthusiastic young interns that helped me significantly in the research. And it's a sort of a snapshot that shows where we're at in this, particularly with defamation, which is the roiling sort of nasty end of, and the most probably the most expensive end of where the media has to sort of defend itself generally in public. And just taking the period of 10 years, say, to the end of last year, so from 10 years up to the end of 2017, the media was in court in Australia defending cases more than 300 times. This is in court. For the trials that actually went all the way through... were favourable to the media. The verdicts, the media was successful in 29% of the cases. And interestingly, favourable verdicts for plaintiffs were a bit lower, 20%. But that's not the full picture because most of the action is actually taking place well away from courts. And if you consider that 51% 
of the cases that are commenced are actually settled. And on a conservative estimate, you would say that of that 51% that are settled, at least three quarters, and I'm being very conservative with that estimate because we don't know. I mean, in in a sense, it's avoiding the whole nature of a public vindication of a reputation because these are settled privately at least three quarters would be settled in favour of the plaintiff. So the media gives the plaintiff some money to go away. So that is a success. That is a win for the plaintiff. So if you take that into account, nearly 60% of cases commenced successfully won by plaintiffs. And that doesn't even consider the vast number of cases that roll into the legal offices of newspapers and television stations each day um, with threats and complaints and so on that are, that are also settled before they even get to court. So the thesis is that with this sort of roughly 60% of cases that the media goes down in, there is something out of balance. The media is defending itself more or less with one hand tied behind its back, possibly two hands. And in comparable common law countries, particularly in the UK and more recently in New Zealand, they've moved ahead with reforms which restore a a better balance. And I think that's really what I wanted to say. We need a better balance at the moment. The media is significantly underwater in its attempt to publish decent, informed, well-researched journalism. I'll just very quickly mention the reform agenda. You know the Attorney-General statutory reform that came out in New South Wales a couple of months ago. There were 16 proposed reforms. The paper was very dated. The the submissions were sort of cut off seven years ago. So in the intervening seven years, there's been an explosion of social media, all of which was ignored in the reform paper. There are some quite technical suggestions to improve things, which, you know, should be supported. But at the end, there's still a lot it's going to be glacially slow to get this through and done because six states have to agree, two territories and the Commonwealth. It'll be a nightmare. You'd think, though, that if the media can force the change of prime minister, it might be able to force a change in defamation laws. I won't go on now, but we'll come back to Me Too litigation and some other observations as Thanks, well. Richard. I'll pass over to Judge Gibson, who's recently written an article on adapting defamation law reform to online publication and she can give her unique perspective on that. Well, taking up the point that Richard just made about online publication, one of the reasons why our defamation law is so outdated is because it's one of many, many statutes which just is uh, is completely out of touch with the profound changes to communication which have resulted in particular from social media. I suppose that most of you would think that most defamation actions are brought against the media, usually by people in the public eye, the rich and the famous. And if you thought that, you'd be agreeing with Patrick George. That's a sentence I've read you from Defamation Law in Australia. I've been the defamation list judge off and on in the district court since 2001. And recently I did a survey of every defamation case in the last four months, all 90 of them. And I can tell you that this is not the case. In fact, the media is the defendant in only about a third of the cases... All the rest are social media, ordinary people suing each other. And what is more, a whacking 40% of those persons are litigants in person. I have been tracing this increase in litigants in person and the number of cases that are being brought. Many of them are what you might call weaponised defamation. They're brought by people who are angry with their neighbours, their former wife, an online review or whatever. Now, the real problem is this. 
when you look at uh, this kind of social media litigation, it's completely misconstrued and dealt with properly by the courts for two reasons. One is the legislation is so out of date that it can't cope with online publication. For example, we don't have a single publication rule. As the, you can forget about a limitation period. Somebody wrote something about you in 1998 which has made its way onto the internet, they can sue. The second problem is case management is hopelessly out of date. It's all aimed at the trial. And so that means that the litigation cost is enormous. And you know what happens with the cost of all of that defamation litigation? It's all tax deductible. So you might call it a social media transmitted debt. That's the problem we've got. We're paying. So that's the second problem you've got. The real difficulty you have is, however, the degree of the, the increasingly feral nature. One of the things that I was horrified to find was of the 90 cases that I looked at over the last four months, nine of them related to contempt of court. Three people were convicted. One went to jail, one paid a big fine, one of them has yet to be sentenced. Three of them are in train and have been referred, and the remaining three were refused. Now, it's one thing to talk about freedom of speech in the First Amendment, but we might need to be looking at the Second Amendment here because, quite frankly, if we're going to be imprisoning people, fining them for what they put on the media because they're social media publications where somebody who's angry says, I won't take it down, what are we coming to? I think we have profound social questions that we need to address, and I'm hoping that the media will take an interest in this and will look at the necessary reforms, not only from the point of view of the media as a defendant, but the media as an exposer of problems with how we deal with these issues as a society. How can we be imprisoning and fining people for exercising their right of freedom of speech? How can we have a defamation law that accurately reflects how we feel about these issues? That's quite refreshing because often the media thinks about these things through the prism of itself rather than what is actually going on in the courts and in society. So I think that's very useful way to think about things. But, of course, it's not just defamation that we face in terms of the landscape for media. Nicola, you've dealt with some family court issues and how journalists are able to report on matters before the family court and found difficulty there, haven't you? That's definitely the biggest impediment to what I do. So I report a lot on the family court, domestic violence and those types of areas. Under the Family Law Act, you have what Section 121 of the Family Law Act, which prevents any identification of anyone who's come before the family court, either as a party or as a witness. And obviously, I'm not in any way arguing against the necessity for that section, because I think it's great that people can come to the court and don't have all their dirty laundry aired by the media. I don't think it's all appropriate, but there's certainly been some incredibly awful cases that have come before us in the last... Even this year, I can think of absolutely shocking murders that have happened in New South Wales, in Victoria, in WA, where... The families involved have been before the family law courts. They might have also been before the, the local court level dealing with domestic violence applications. And then there is an absolutely shocking murder that takes place. And we cannot 
at all explore this issue of what could be better done in the family court when you have these parties appearing before judges and psychologists, experts, looking at how perhaps these murders could have been better prevented, what flags were there along the way, because we cannot even, in the case of a shocking murder, identify that these people have been before the family law courts. And what that means, so I can think of one case where it was completely farcical. We actually put inaccuracies in our newspaper articles to get around this idea so that we could report on the murder and get around this idea that they had been before the family court and the lower level federal circuit court. One day our lawyers said, okay, we can say that they'd had an ugly custody dispute. The next day they said, oh no, I think that's going a bit far. We can just say that they had a dispute between them. And then there's sort of connected issues. So if you go to the family court and you want to file a notice of risk of abuse, that is automatically you're going to notify the child welfare authorities but not the police. So we can't look at how perhaps if the police had been notified of this risk of abuse, maybe someone wouldn't have got a gun licence, maybe different things would have happened. We just can't shine a light on that at all. So you've got this horrible situation where you just have the most shocking domestic violence going on and just in no way can the system be held to account at all. And it also prevents us identifying expert witnesses. So in the family law system, the experts, the psychologists, the report writers, they're the ones who recommend whether a child should go, should live with their mother, should live with their father, what's in the best interest of the children. What they say is often gospel. Usually what the family report writer says is what the judge will land up deciding. But obviously some report writers are better than others. Some have wacky ideas about domestic violence. Some think all women make up allegations of abuse. Some think, no, nobody ever makes up allegations of abuse. But we can't look at what individual report writers do, how often they appear before the court, because we simply don't even know who they are in cases. They, they're, you know, they might be called Dr R or Dr something or other. So even in one case that I had, you had a judge who had found that a psychologist's personal animosity towards the father had strongly coloured their recommendations. So this guy took a disliking to the father, recommended he could only have supervised access to his children. He's now been referred to a tribunal. Even in that case, we cannot say, this is the psychologist, this is what he said, you know, this is what he said in other cases. We just can't go there at all. Thank you. I think there's a, there'll be a lot to unpack there in discussion. I'll just go to Kate now. Kate is, amongst many other roles, is chair of the Australian Copyright Council and has been a lay member of our union's ethics panel. We try to be ethical. I um, often say that one of the reasons I like working in copyright is that it's not life and death, but that's going to be really highlighted by the relative superficiality of what I'm about to say compared to that. But I would like to talk a little bit about the environment relating to copyright that journalists find themselves working in. I work with a lot of creators, in which category I, of course, include journalists. And I think now more than ever, creators are finding themselves in a very vulnerable position because of the both the legal situation involving the protection of the works that they create, but also the cultural environment in which they work. And 
Of course, that is particularly the case when an increasing number of journalists are working for themselves and what the position that they therefore find themselves in is that they are both vulnerable to liability but also much more exposed to other people stealing the product of their labour. And I think that that is a terrible position for journalists to be in because of the value of the works that journalists create. And I think if, if defamation is a cost centre, then copyright is your revenue centre. And, and the reason that strong copyright laws exist is so that creators can make a living out of what they create. And there are, at the moment, very strong and powerful lobby groups who are advocating for the dilution of copyright laws that protect creators and the strengthening of exceptions that favour content delivery platforms. And I think that can only harm creators. And I think that it's the result of a number of factors that get talked about a lot, but including a perception of a lower value of content compared to a higher value of technology and delivery. And I think that society tends to focus a lot more on what governments think of as innovation as opposed to creation, where I don't really see why creativity and innovation have to be antonyms. Most creators are also innovators. I think that obviously the sharing culture that we all experience and the the technological ease with which material can be shared also serves to devalue content. I think that there have been a lot of confused responses to digital technology from large copyright owners. This gets talked about a lot in the context of the music industry, but I think that traditional media are also now suffering from the responses that they had and, and my observation would be that so the music industry in the face of digital downloads primarily and then later streaming sort of shut down, brought down all of its defences and looked frankly like a bunch of dinosaurs because they put their hands over their eyes and their ears and said we're not going to let anyone have our music. Those industries, interestingly, now are able to get some revenue streams and increasing revenue streams from licensed legal streaming services and, to a lesser extent these days, download services. Traditional media, on the other hand, put all of their stuff out there. And so the the content was, was freely available for many, many years and it's only now that the paywalls are really being put in place and people are rebelling against that. And I think that those sorts of confused responses from large corporate copyright owners have led to a particular reaction on the part of consumers who resent these responses to technology. And I I don't necessarily think that's anyone's fault, but I think that that's one of the reasons why we find ourselves where we are today. I also think there's just an old-fashioned disrespect for skills that talented people make look easy. I think, you know, whether it's uh, my five-year-old could do that painting, I do think that there is a profound disrespect for the work of journalists as there is for the work of creators generally. That means that people aren't willing to put a price on content, whereas they might put a price on a widget. And so what we have is incredibly powerful content delivery platforms that are lobbying for changes to the copyright laws that would absolve them from any liability for copyright infringement, which basically leaves the uploading 
freelance journalists and the uploading corporate copyright owners on their own while the content platforms profit from the dissemination of material that other people have paid to create. And you also have, coupled with that, an ease of infringement, which means that if you are a blogger or posting your own material online, you're going to be personally liable for material that you put out there and for any comments that anybody puts on your material. But also, you're going to be very exposed to other people who are going to be able to take your material. And we often get instances where people effectively create a duplicate local newspaper on Facebook. Entire publications are going up on Facebook and Facebook says, well, we'll take it down. That's, what's, your, what's your problem? We'll take it down. But it's been there and the people who have actually written the material have had their work stolen. And so these problems are the reasons why the, certainly the Copyright Council but also a lot of the people that I act for are arguing strongly that copyright laws should not be weakened. We should actually be protecting creators' rights. Thanks. And it's also one of the reasons why freelance membership of our union now comes with professional indemnity insurance. So if you're a freelancer, you should be a member of the union. Look, I think the common theme there in all those areas of law is that the lived reality is changing so quickly because of digital disruption in all forms. And the legal framework is struggling to keep up. And I mean, the 2000, it was something of a minor miracle that all the jurisdictions in 2005 brought in uniform defamation laws. After five years, there was meant to be, or as soon as possible after five years, there was meant to be the statutory review, and that's only just kicking into gear now. So things move very slowly. I'll take it back to Judge Gibson. Are there dangers with this review? You've got people now wanting the dead and their estates being able to sue for defamation. You had the New South Wales Attorney General putting on the table the right for corporations to sue for defamation and you you had the retort from the Victorian Attorney General saying over my dead body so death and taxes as well seem to be common. So are there risks and what can we hope for? Give him credit. I think that the New South Wales Attorney General did similarly say that uh, it would be over his dead body as well. That uh, was a proposal that was very dear to the heart of the Tasmanian government. They were threatened to do this back in 2015. They wanted to uh, introduce the right of corporations to sue as part of a a cocktail of remedies for large corporations faced with greenies who are very difficult to deal with otherwise. So, yes, the real problem, however, is that not just defamation law, but most laws are completely out of touch with online, with the whole concept of modern technology. What we really need is for the Commonwealth Government to use the telecommunications power to set up some sort of ongoing inquiry with the Australian Law Reform Commission so that they can really review all legislation as a kind of watching brief to point out that there are problems with, for example, limitation periods, admissibility of evidence, the preparation of police briefs and considering the elements of new digital-related crimes. It's a whole range. That's what we need. But the trouble is you've got all these technophobes, although I believe the word for judges is technophogies, because we're we're so old. That's the word they used to describe the US Supreme Court. You see, you can't have people who are out of touch with modern technology and too afraid to tell you. That's the single biggest problem. The other biggest problem we have in the courts is this case management issue. You have too many judges who think of litigants as being rather like the Aztec ritual where you'd be sacrificed for the good of the community. 
they expect people to be able to cough up somewhere between a quarter of a million and a million to go to court and run some case so that they can have a precedent. One of the unspoken realities about our legal system is that the precedent system is under challenge because it simply can't keep up with the speed of modern life. It just cannot do it. And, and we're looking, therefore, at basically a civil law system. It's just that nobody wants to say so. So with the advent of online publication, you know, the people formerly known as the audience can now throw themselves into the fray and publish with a thumb, although I did have the image of technophogies probably having tweets printed out for them so they can read them in their chambers. But would something like a serious harm threshold as a part of reform really clear the courts or clear a lot of that? What other changes do you think should come in to speed up this process? The judges are completely right. You know, the main action now is in online defamation and the courts, the judges, with a notable exception here today, haven't really caught up with this. I mean, they haven't even got to grips with whether Google and Facebook are publishers. We don't know that yet. So you look at most of the cases that are going through the courts, they're all social media cases. I mean, even the big cases that we've seen, the, the Wilson, the Rainey and the Wagner cases were not really against journalists, unless you count the Woman's Day as journalism. So the whole ground has shifted really significantly, and I think it will eventually be a high court matter, you know, ultimately to decide whether, you know, Google and Facebook are publishers or not. The other problems are that the statutory cap on damages is blown out because they're backdooring this aggravated damages into general damages and aggravated damages blow the the cap to to kingdom. This is why you're getting these huge verdicts of millions of dollars. So apart from all the sort of obvious reform areas that need to be, and some of them are sort of really technical, you know, the other problem is that defamation actions are sort of run as a part of an industry. There's an industry of lawyers that go around looking, patrolling the corridors of journalism, if you like, to find a way to make some money out of a story. This is basically what this is sort of stuff rolling in the courts all the time. It's just a cash register thing. And there's a sort of cultural thing. And many judges have a hostility, an inbuilt hostility to journalism and the media. So when you couple all that with, you know, absolutely defunct defamation defences, it's a pitiful environment for the media. I mean, I know from firsthand that being tied up for two years for defamation proceedings, they never went to court, but I was regularly being quizzed about someone suing me and the City Morning Herald when I worked there. Look, it really is, part of it is a balance of public's right to know. And I, I want to come back to Nicola and her discussion of the family court because it did raise a number of questions to me, my mind, given the quiet well, early violent history of the family court in the in the 1970s when it was set up and people, judges being attacked physically, you know, violently. Uh, and isn't there some sort of right for those court proceedings to be kept private for, for safety reasons? I mean, how do we balance that? I think that the safety of judges is obviously... I think that's a separate issue because... You know, we can go inside a courtroom, we can report what's going on, we just can't report any of the names. I guess for me the restriction when when there's been something as high profile as a murder that you can't then go back and look at 
you know, because a murder, by definition, you want to put their name in the paper, their face, you want to explain their personal story. You need to identify that person. So that's the problem. You can't then link it to what family law proceedings has come before. There, I mean, there was another horrible case in Victoria where in Victoria it's even worse because you can't identify someone who is the subject of a family violence intervention order. So, you know, th there's an awful case there at the moment where you've had a woman who was about to testify in a rape case. She, you know, she's terrible, you know, suffered terrible things. Even after their death, you cannot identify that a person has been, you know, is a rape victim. And obviously there are certainly strong public interests in, in that being the case, but in, in situations where there's a murder, I just think that the public interest in trying to prevent these horrible incidents occurring maybe outweighs, you know, the right to privacy of an individual. But I think the cap on damages is definitely something that we um, need to change. It just It just is completely out of whack that you can get more money for harm to your reputation than you can for, you know, losing both hands. You're going to get less than some of these ridiculous defamation payouts. So I'm not for one minute, going to go into bat and say everything that Alan Jones says is correct and, and balanced or anything like that. But there, there is just a problem with the size of the damages that is out there. And I think that clearly there's a problem with the statute if our lawmakers have tried to put a cap that's around $400,000, which will still be hurt a lot to media organisations in this day and age when you're laying off staff and, and laying off journalists. That's still a lot of money, let alone all the legal fees that go with something. But when you have millions Millions of dollars being paid out to wealthy families um, who pursue these matters. I don't know. They, that, that needs to be tightened up. So I was thinking about the cap. I mean, Mia is going to be campaigning for a hard cap on damages, but it did get me thinking, if there is a cap on damages, doesn't this just mean that the wealthy can just afford to defame people? I mean, just if I defame somebody or Alan Jones defames somebody, he's got more money than me, so... If there's a cap it's going to, of a few hundred thousand, that's going to affect me quite badly, but won't affect him very badly at all. It's the damages, the interest and the costs that rack up. I mean, the Wagner case, the publishers there and the broadcasters would be lucky to get out of that for under $10 million. If you add the costs of that trial, he's got to pay for both sides and uh, as, as well as the damages. So... The general damages cap, I think there probably needs to be a cap for aggravated damages now because, you know, it's the aggravated damages are up to the millions, whereas the general common law damages are set at about 385000 maximum. I think it's the problem with how it's been interpreted. So, you know, if aggravated damages exist, then the cap just is completely blown away for general damages and aggravated damages. I don't think there would be any cases involving the media where aggravated damages is not raised as an issue. You know, obviously people try to raise aggravated damages against the media whenever they can, and I think probably they would, you know, often succeed in that. I just say this, the way that the cap on damages was interpreted was completely different. The first time there was a suggestion that you could use the aggravated damages claim to increase damages at all was in a 2011 decision in the Queensland Supreme Court where Justice Applegarth in a case called Ceruti said, well, yes, this is how it works. But he didn't say you throw the cap away. The idea that you threw the cap away is something that we owe to Justice Dixon, I think, in the Bauer case where he didn't even refer to Crestside, 
and all of a sudden you get this great blowout of figures. Then this is followed in Rainey, then you get it in Wagner, and you get all these million-dollar verdicts. But I don't think that was the intention when the Act was drafted. The idea was the general damages would be covered by... But if there were aggravated damages which took that outside the cap, then the fact that there were aggravated... But it wasn't that the cap would go away completely and there would be general damages. It's yet another example of the law being interpreted in this really quite fanciful fashion that we saw with the jettisoning of the Section 26 contextual justification defence. That was intended to be the same as New South Wales. And I just don't understand why, all of a sudden, when this is suddenly, again, in 2011, bad year for defamation, suddenly the Court of Appeal says, oh, no, no, it's all different. The five or six years beforehand where there were decisions to the contrary, they said, no, they got it wrong. I want to raise up jurisdiction. So, Richard, I was struck by your article, the data in there show the overwhelming number of cases in Australia for defamation or in New South Wales and didn't look at the data on suppression orders, but I think suppression orders are quite popular. If you want a suppression order, you go to Victoria because the courts there seem to be quite keen to suppress things. So, A, why are there so many cases in New South Wales? Yeah, it's I think just culturally, historically, New South Wales has always been the home, and Sydney in particular, has been the home city of, of defamation. It's got specialist judges, although, you know, there's a lot of forum shopping going on at the moment, particularly people going to the federal court where you don't have juries and all sorts of um, plaintiffs that might or might not appear unattractive to juries are going to the federal court where they just get a judge alone. And the judges alone there are doing extraordinary things, like they're they're throwing out the truth defences in many cases. In, one of the, in the Jeffrey Rush case, it was thrown out. In the Chowchak Wing case, it was thrown out. There have to be expensive appeals to try and get truth back in as a defence. It is really a serious problem if the media is not allowed to agitate a truth defence. And the other thing they're saying now is that, of course, unless you have all your facts in the locker before the story is published, you can't use any other facts you've found subsequently. This is a sort of new idea, but the federal courts come up with this and seems quite happy with it. But with suppression orders, it's a nightmare. And honestly, there was, in the old days, it was just a sort of common law. You know, the judges would say occasionally, yes, we've got to suppress that if it's a back-to-back trial or there's a potential prejudice, that was a reasonable thing. But then New South Wales and Victoria passed these acts, these special acts. The Victoria one beautifully is called the Open Courts Act, which is the great home of suppression. And in New South Wales, the more honestly named Suppression Orders and No Publication Orders Act. But, yeah, Victoria's way ahead. Anyone, it's become just a reflex now for barristers to stand up and say to the judge, suppression order, Your Honour, and without much thinking about it, no need for a reason, no need for a time delay in giving it, they get the suppression order. And this is not just to stop prejudice, But, you know, many cases involve preventing embarrassment or, you know, the publication of photographs or medical reports and these sort of things that are just... And the courts seem to me to be sort of closing themselves off from the real world, from from the world at large, and becoming this sort of isolated bubble of, you know, where they conduct things remotely from the rest of the community. There's a lot of forum shopping going on and one of the things that I've noticed in particular with litigants in person is that there's an increasing number of them bringing actions in the magistrates' courts 
And in one case, an outraged opponent went to the Supreme Court of the ACT and said, you can't run complex cases like defamation court cases in the local court. And, they, and the response was, oh, well, they've got jurisdiction, why not? We've also, there's also been cases in the um, ACT Administrative Tribunal. There have been several cases there. There have been attempts to bring cases in the New South Wales and uh, Victorian tribunals. They're all over the place. I, this is the trouble. It's become the new vogue thing to sue for. And many of these cases are being brought in courts which have no expertise in this area. And in the case of magistrates' courts, they're so stretched for resources. They've got an average of, I think, eight minutes to hear each application. They don't have a couple of days to hear a complex defamation case. And we're now reading about these cases on appeal because they've been so marked up that they get set aside on appeal. This is what's so, so troubling, that we've got this enormous great increase of cases in not just the federal court but in all these other courts where there aren't specialist lists which can at least put the brakes on. I'm kind of loath to bring in another thread, but given how much we've got to discuss already, but sort of the international aspect of things affects copyright, but increasingly one of the big areas where journalists have had to tread carefully is on state security issues, and I notice some some of the comments by the Federal Attorney-General, Christian Porter, he's minded to allow changes to the Defamation Act basically if they were around state security issues. And I think in the context of the ongoing Chowchuk Wing case, which we have to be very careful about what we say, I think how does the international area affect these, what we can learn, but also the intersection of state security, um, some either correct criticism of Chinese influence or paranoia about Chinese influence, depending on your perspective. Are you talking about the Foreign Interference Act? The Foreign Interference Act, but also Christian Porter was talking about bringing in defence on defamation on national security grounds as well. Okay. Well, yeah, the espionage and foreign influence legislation that went through this year is the latest in a whole string of sort of security laws that make life very difficult for the media. And the latest law makes no exemption for journalism. Who, journalists who receive state secrets, there's no exemption for that. They're open to be prosecuted for um, the intentional dealing with information. So if you... Even where the information is not published. So if you receive an envelope that's got a piece of classified information in it and you open the envelope in order to consider whether to publish it or not, that is dealing with a state secret. You haven't published it, but you're still liable, and the penalties quite a long time in jail are quite serious. So I think, you know, you saw with the ABC recently with its stockpile of secret filing cabinet stuff that they gave back, and I think this is just all a response to the sort of general government menace about state security and... and just being heavy with journalists about it and no one wants to be, you know, end up in a sort of secret court. So coupled with, you know, the metadata legislation that collects journalists' telephone and internet connections, government agencies can pretty well see what journalists are up to all the time now. So it's a, it's a very dangerous environment. On the national security issue, I guess one of the problems is also the 
tendency of our government, which, as I understand it, is not the same in the US, to just want to classify everything. So anything that they've done, you know, somehow by the AFP somehow becomes a classified document when, you know, instead of the mentality being this is information that belongs to the public and only if we really need to classify it should we classify it. What came out in the Hanif matter many years ago is now is this over-tendency to classify just absolutely everything. Even the AFP talking points became classified information and that obviously has flow-on effects to when journalists can get into trouble for accessing certain information perhaps, you know, is just an over-tendency to classify. I think in the Chow Chak Wing case and also the Ben Robert Smith case, which obviously all of them are, you know, I can't judge whether, you know, truth or otherwise, but it's just the extraordinary aggression we're seeing by people with deep pockets to almost intimidate the media to not report on certain issues. So, you know, in the Ben Robert Smith case, obviously we've seen he has a team of lawyer, you know, media people he he's it, it's just you know I'm aware of one journalist who put in questions not 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 on my newspaper but put in questions and even just for asking questions received a legal letter warning that the very questions that had been asked were possibly defamatory so you know it's just a it's a very aggressive stance that's taken against journalists who want to publish that. The other thing in both those cases which I think is interesting is that there's an added risk I think for the media when you have the ABC working together with Fairfax. So you've seen come out in the Ben Robert Smith case emails that sort of you know say an email by Fairfax or a text message that suggests an interview by an ABC journalist and there's sort of an institutional risk there where your journalistic methods you can rely on but you know, when it comes to working with another organisation, perhaps the mere fact of working with another organisation could possibly then go to some form of aggravation later on. I don't know if that's what they're going to try to argue, but um, also you can't really vouch for the way the other organisation operates. So I just think that's just an added layer of risk that the media is now facing. We'll see if the nine Fairfax merger goes ahead, if uh, formerly known as Fairfax journalists will be doing their investigations with a current affair instead rather than four corners. I don't want to leave Kate out of this discussion in terms of the international perspective, but copyright in terms of free trade agreements and how the international aspect of how journalists exist on the global stage, what's changing there? Well, I think that it's one thing to say is that copyright law is largely a product of treaty arrangements and so globally... It's not an entirely harmonised field. There are very significant differences between different territories, but there are some things that are increasingly similar, often as the result of free trade agreements or other international treaties. In fact, I think one of the reasons why copyright owners cop so much flack in Australia is because when the US-Australia free trade agreement was entered into, one of the conditions that the United States put on the Australian government was that the term of copyright protection be extended from 50 years plus the life, so 50 years after the death of the author to 70 years after the death of the author, which was not actually something that copyright owners here had been advocating for, but in the interests of LAM, we got an extended term. Now, that is obviously a benefit to copyright owners, but it is always given as the reason why 
copyright protection should be diminished because the term is relatively long, even though actually on a world scale it's, it's about the same as it is in most other developed countries. One of the biggest problems, I think, for journalists and copyright is the fact that material that's created in one territory can be communicated in another territory and the laws in each territory, particularly relating to damages but also relating to the exceptions to copyright, are vastly different. And so something that's created in America in the expectation that it will get the benefit of a fair use exception may well not get the benefit of one of our fair dealing exceptions. And that type of conflict is, and obviously it can now be communicated here very easily over the internet, and that type of conflict is the sort of thing that is used by copyright minimalists or copyleft people, they call themselves, I think, just a bit daggy, and is that type of conflict is used as a as a reason to advocate for an American style fair use exception, which copyright owners in Australia say is actually very inappropriate for this territory. So within Australia, amongst journalists, probably the biggest cry around copyright breaches are thanks Daily Mail, and I won't be too rude to Daily Mail because we have good members there too. But how do journalists in the age of journalism? deal with someone's work six months on an investigation they publish it within an hour it's on a rival's website sometimes in the third or fourth paragraph as reported in the australian or wherever but it's just completely lifted and presented as their own work what can journalists do about that i see increasingly on social media i follow quite a few journalists on twitter and increasingly journalists are calling out that conduct which might be personally satisfying but isn't is probably not going to get material taken down. I think that we are at about a point where it is probably time for a test case on the fair dealing exception for reporting news because I suspect that publications like the Daily Mail and there are others that have very similar practices, I suspect that they believe they are relying on the exception that says it's a fair dealing if it's for the purposes of reporting news. Now, I I do remember... When many, many years ago, when media was only print media, somebody ran a story about an L. McPherson topless calendar with a very large photograph of from the calendar and tried to say that this was for the purposes of reporting news because the news story was that she had done a topless calendar. I think that what people forget about when they look at fair dealings is they, they look at the purpose but they forget the fact that it has to be fair. And I think that if there is a publication that has got a concerted practice of lifting stories, and I've never done a side-by-side comparison, but I have seen journalists say this is word for word what I wrote and that's infringement. It's not... It's not just taking the facts from one story, which might be permissible, although, as I say, I think it might be time for a test case on this. It's not fair. And the Copyright Act... photographs? Photographers are in the most pernicious position because when a photograph is taken, the whole photograph is taken. It's often highly just for the purposes of illustration, and it's clickbait. In, in these types of online publications that we're talking about, a lot of traffic is attracted to the photographs. I spend a bit of time on the Daily Mail website, I must admit. <laughs> and, and the metadata from a 
photograph is very easily stripped out and people all the time claim that a photograph that they are using is an orphan work and they've tried and tried to find the copyright owner and they just can't. And this happens to travel journalists a lot. So travel agents will just use a photograph of Hawaii that they find on the internet and it's some travel journalist who's got a proper website portfolio up and with metadata in the photographs and it just gets stripped out and people put it on their own website. So I think it is time for a case, but it's interesting to compare the situation with damages for copyright infringement and damages for defamation because the vast majority of copyright infringement cases, the damages are nothing because the courts will say that the damages are going to be what a reasonable licence fee would have been. In the case of a photograph, you get a lot of copyright infringers saying a reasonable licence fee for a photograph is what I would have paid Getty Images, which might be... $50. So that's why you need test cases and it's why test cases are run by collective organisations who can afford to run cases where the damages might end up being $5. That'll be over to you to hopefully bring these laws up to some relevance for today. So thanks for attending. to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. Thanks again to the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund, which supported the essay Richard Ackland wrote on the legal landscape for journalism, and which you can find in the Walkley magazine on Medium. Thanks also to Banky Haddock-Fiora, our legal partner. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe, and you'll be the first to learn about new episodes, events, and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the 2SER studios in Sydney, Australia. See you next time. Mm